Welcome to Ask the Rabbi with Rabbi Menachem Creditor, a Jcast Network podcast. Join Rabbi Creditor each month as he is asked questions about Judaism, Jewish ritual, and Jewish thought by members of his community at Congregation Nitivot Shalom in Berkeley, California, and tries to provide understanding and deeper meaning in Jewish life and learning. For more information about Rabbi Creditor, please visit menachemcreditor.org. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. session with a very beautiful story that just happened actually this past Sunday. There's a member of the shul. I say member because he's here pretty often. He's here almost every Shabbat. But you might not know that he lives in a car. Um, and I see him sometimes walking back home. And You wouldn't know because, thank God, no one knows. Uh, he just gets to be part of the shul. He sometimes does the dishes. He just likes to be here a lot. And the shul has come to be very important to him. So he asked me a little while ago, as it turns out, his family does have some money with which they're taking care of him. Could I call his family and ask him, uh, ask them on his behalf to make a gift to the shul? Because he doesn't have access to the money, but he really wants to give a gift. It was incredibly moving. Um, I said, you know, the truth is we're just really thrilled to be your home. I mean, you give us so much by being here. The ways that you contribute, the way that you're present, it matters quite a lot. Um, so he popped his head in by sort of not knowing that there was a board meeting happening. So just this past Sunday night, board sitting in this room, and he just pops his head in, and I, I knew he wasn't here for the board meeting. So I brought him outside, and I, I said, so good to see you. Are you here for the board meeting? He said, oh, no, I didn't know there was a meeting, but I called my family and asked them if they would make a gift um, using some of the money, and, and they said, no, they wouldn't do it. So And then he showed me what he had in his hands. So I went and bought this bottle of juice. And I'd like to give it to the shul uh, for Kiddush, the Shabbat, after davening. Can I give this to you? And I have to tell you, like, no gift meant any more. He was giving exactly what he could and more. Um, and so right now in the fridge of the kitchen, there's holy juice. Uh, and I've invited every kid's class and every grown-up class that I've taught since Sunday uh, to come specially for the Shabbat, to come take a sip of it. Because I have to tell you, I don't drink sugary drinks, um, but I'm going to drink this one with an absolute bracha. And if he's present, amazing. You'll see some ecstasy on people's faces, who know. Uh, and if not, we'll all be thinking about a shul that can be a home to someone to that extent. Uh, my hope is that it really is that for more people than just him. 
So, in honor of him, in honor of some holy juice, uh, let's start. Who's got a question? So, um, this is something that I was wondering about. Is there a halakhic obligation on Jews to follow secular laws of the country that they live in? Awesome question. Yes, there is. Within halakha, within Jewish law, there is the concept of dina malchuta dina. It's an Aramaic phrase which means the law of the kingdom is the law. And so um, that would mean that crossing against a light is a violation of Jewish law because it's a violation of civil law. But it, it also means that when there's a civil authority that oversees the entire society, Jewish law answers to it in some way, which means in the Kehila system, in the old system in Eastern Europe, if there was an issue that happened within the Jewish community, in fact, the emperor or the king or whomever wanted the Jewish community to self-regulate. They pay taxes, but they would take care of their own internal issues, even what we would consider civil issues. Today, even though there are categories of Jewish law that would determine and answer in any given question, we trust the state to adjudicate. And so in that case also, Dina Malchuta Dina, the law of the country is the law. So then what about laws which directly go against halakha? For example, bans on kosher slaughter or a ban on uh, performing circumcision. Right. So um, if, God forbid, either one of those would be enacted in the United States, um, we would not violate the law necessarily. What we would probably try to do is find a way to circumvent so, you know, another example would be during the time of Prohibition, sacramental wine was allowed right, for Kiddush. So the difference between that and that is you could make Kiddush on grape juice instead of wine. But circumcision can't be done without doing circumcision. And so one of the reasons that um, freedom of religion, not freedom from religion, is so important to every community, but especially to the Jewish community too in the United States, is because we raise our voice and we're activists on the issue. And so when in San Francisco, because of a very strange way of getting measures on the ballot, an anti-circumcision measure was going to be introduced to the ballot, the Jewish community and the Muslim community, hand in hand, and the medical community and others, uh, worked very hard to make sure that that um, wouldn't be uh, introduced into law, even onto the ballot. Um, and so, it's not that circumcision is the representative legal case, but shechita, right, ritual slaughter, in certain European countries right now, Western European countries, has been outlawed. Uh, and in England, that is always threatened, and sometimes enacted, and sometimes rescinded. Um, that's more a concern, not of when is civil law Jewish law, but how does Judaism function under another system of authority? Um, and that has proven to be a very serious challenge throughout history. Um, the question can be posed, when in a country specific legislation is introduced which is veiled anti-Semitism, how do we respond as Jews? It's a different question than the one that you're asking, but the Shechita rules and the circumcision uh, uh, initiatives that have begun many times in the Bay Area are 
uh, are very targeted. Um, and so the question is, how does a Jew function in society? Uh, I forget which countries. Poland is one. Yeah, and I th think <coughs> Norway. I don't know if it's going to work. There, there are there are a number of countries that have introduced and some have passed legislation outlawing ritual slaughter in Hebrew called shechita, mm -hmm. um, and they say because it's inhumane. Now there are different practices of slaughter, some of which are more painful for the animal, uh, and some are less. One of the controversial issues within halakha is can you stun an animal before slaughtering it? And the stunning is to make sure that, well, to make it feel less pain. Um, that's an internal dispute within the halakha, but the idea that shrita is inherently inhumane is, I, I think, spurious. spurious. Um, the problem, however, and this is to be, you know, I don't like whitewashing anything, that shechita, the ritual slaughter of animals that has happened under kosher auspices in the United States, has been far from a spotless record. Um, there have been violations many times of the rules, and they happen in the name of ritual slaughter, but they are violations of the rules of ritual slaughter. So there's a big company called Rubashkins that has been under scrutiny now for a number of years, owned by one very um, influential family, in the, Hasid, the Chabad world. Um, and when it was found that there were violations, many, many violations, not only of animal cruelty, but of workers' rights, um, the Jewish community was aghast at what had happened. It wasn't just the secular authorities that uh, came in and closed down the plant. Um, but the reason that is usually presented for uh, outlawing shechita is cruelty to animals. I have a marriage-related question. Is there anything in the law um, that sort of guides relationships between um, family members, like in-laws or um, your wife's family or your husband's family? Is there anything specifically like, set? Yes. <laughs> well, I guess, yeah. <laughs> um, um, yeah. Do they come from us, like, are they all over the place, or do they come from a same spirit, or...? So within the um, Torah's text itself, there aren't necessarily rules, halachot or mitzvot, that are given um, dictating the, the um, way that you would conduct yourself with in-laws. But the in interpreters of the Torah, the rabbis, saw specifically this, um, the law about honoring parents, kabed et avicha vetimecha. In Hebrew, the word et. So kabed et means honor, but the word kabed means honor. So et seems to be an extra word. Kabed et avicha vetimecha means honor your father and your mother. Well, the word et, even though grammatically it does signal that there's a noun coming, seems to be meaningless. And so the rabbis interpreted the word et, which has no meaning, to mean not only honor your parents, honor your in-laws. So all of the obligations that you owe to your parents, you do owe to your in-laws. Um, and it's spelled out actually in very, very serious detail in different corpuses of, um, of halakha, including Mishnah Torah, uh, Maimonides' uh, Guide to Jewish Law. Um, and in the more, more recent um, An Observant Life, a uh, big, big, thick book put out by the Rabbinical Assembly about how to guide ourselves in inter 
interpersonal relationships. Um, I would say, just as a meta response to the question, not an answer to the question, is that the reason why the answer must be yes is because it's very hard. And so halakha is usually there because the case is also there. Um, and one of the reasons I believe that the rabbis probably interpreted a meaningless word to mean all of that is because the rabbis had a hard time with in-laws as well. Relationships are always hard, and when it is a relationship, not the direct relationship that you've chosen, but the obligations that come along because of that commitment, that's a... We need rules in order to be our best selves in those cases. Bueller. Bueller. So, um, another thing that I was thinking about is it. According to, for example, the um, State of Israel's Law of Return, um, you, you, know, you have to have at least one grandparent who was Jewish, and then also that you do not currently practice another religion. Um, and so I was wondering, I mean, because you know, there are situations in you know, the Torah of... Jews worshiping idols, which I guess you could maybe interpret as like a different religion. And you would say, okay, well, they're bad Jews, but do they stop being Jews as soon as they worship something else? There are big controversies with that question. Um, when it comes to the law of, uh, law of return for Jews in Israel, there was a classic case, I think it was called Brother Dan, where there was a Jew who not only converted, but became an evangelical Christian, out to convert Jews. Um, and the question was, did he qualify under the law of return? I forget how, how the law um, answered the question, but it's, it's obviously a very big question. Was he identifiably a Jew? No, but is he part of the tribe by birth? Yes, but tribe by birth doesn't define everybody, and tribe by birth doesn't define a person's commitments now. Um, there is a phrase within the halakha that says, Yisrael afalpi shechata Yisrael hu. A Jew, even though they've sinned, is a Jew. So a Jew who worships idols is a Jew who worshipped an idol. And inasmuch as there are processes, processes for conversion to other religions, right, as defined by those other religions, Judaism doesn't recognize them. And so, in fact, even if someone converts out of Judaism, in Jewish eyes, they're a Jew. The question is, what's the limit of that? And it's, you know, there are a lot and a, a lot, a lot of questions. Usually they come up when it comes to the law of return or burial. Right, burial in a, in a cemetery. Um, and so, if you're asking me, as opposed to the state of Israel, I'm a Jew who worships an idol, right? What's my status in Jewish law? It says, you're a Jew who sinned. But, hi, sister. Like, who hasn't? If the reason why you're asking, I'm looking at you even though I'm not thinking about you, if the reason that you're asking is because um, you worshipped an idol and, and feel like you did something wrong and you want to return, well, then you're a Jew who did wrong who's repenting. If you're coming to me because you're a Jew who worshipped an idol and isn't interested in returning, you're basically testing whether or not I still love you. <laughs> 
And the answer is, yeah, I don't get it, but I love you. Um, and if the person is asking because they're like, I like idols and want one, I'll say, don't get one. And then the question is, what are they going to do? Um, I suppose it was because um, I know people that have grown up in interfaith households who say, you know, like they have a Christian parent and a Jewish parent, they say, I'm both. Right. And I have a very strong personal discomfort with that answer um, for, you know, maybe other reasons. And so I just, I was wondering if you, if you can be both. I can answer halakhically, I can answer existentially, and I can answer pastorally. Okay. I'll do all three, because okay. it's much more fun. Halakhically, no. You're Jewish or you're not. Existentially, um, it's more complicated than that. Um, the idea of half or mixed or inter or whatever, those are sociological terms, but they aren't religious terms from within Judaism. Um, and... Uh, that's sort of the existential answer, which is likely if someone's asking the question, they know that Jewish law says, no, you are or you're not. Existentially, they probably say, I am and I'm not. Um, and so pastorally, you know, I've long felt not that there is, well, let me say positively, in a world of billions of people, when two people meet and love each other and f just, it's right, um, I'm pretty sure God's happy about that. Um, and so it's not that I find there to be something evil about a family with a Jewish and non-Jewish parent, or just partner, forget forget children, partnerships. Um, the challenge that I feel is similar to someone I, I dated a long, long time ago whose parents lived, who divorced and lived two blocks away from each other. And they had a hard time figuring out sometimes where their stuff was. Uh, and, you know, I, I wasn't inside that person's head. I don't know what the experience was. But I remember saying to myself, you know, that's probably really difficult. I have home in both. They're my homes. I just I don't know where my stuff is. And there's something unsettling about that. I'm, I'm sure that there are synthetic ways to live as both. I just imagine that it's harder to figure out in any given moment which part of me is more pronounced and what I have to wonder about which part of me. Uh, oh, I was just going to say that's interesting because I actually had this conversation with my father-in-law and his friend who was visiting from out of town about when you were talking about converting and if I was to bring my son to the mikvah, why wouldn't I just convert at the same time? Because that's really saying something that I want to raise my kid in the Jewish tradition. And they were like, well, why? Yeah, why wouldn't you? And I said, well, I could think of a reason why not. And that is to say that I would want to raise my kid in one tradition only. And that maybe I didn't feel identified with Judaism, but I wanted my kid to feel identified with and so I don't really have a really strong desire to practice Christianity, but I want to have a Jewish household so that my kid has one house. Mm -hmm. Because I grew up going back and forth between houses every three and a half days. Mm. Not between religions, but I know that place of, where am I? And so that's not how I feel, but I could imagine saying that. 
I do identify with Judaism enough to feel like I'd want to convert someday or at least walk the walk. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. anyway, I was just thinking of that. Yeah. I mean, the, the, I didn't know that I was speaking this, you know, so in such a relevant way, like the word liminal is such a dangerous word because it's used way too often, but like not here, not there, like I'm on the threshold. Mm-hmm. I think identity is meant to sort of help us navigate a world that is all liminal. And so, you know, your personal decision aside, right? So for the children in the conversation, mm-hmm. the... So the security of knowing who you are in a mm-hmm. much more clear way than the world actually offers mm-hmm. is, uh, I think, uh, an important value. It's one that I, I think about all the time because in a community where there are many people who are intermarried and many people who fall into whatever in-between category, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of religion, in terms of gender, in terms of anything, like it's really, I think the security of knowing who we are affirmed as that whole person and of course, if who I am affirmed as my whole person is a complicated mixture of a lot of different things, I still feel, and this is me speaking as one person, I still feel like it's important to have a secure and centered notion of self. Mm-hmm. I, have, I would want to make room for other, maybe more philosophical questions, but I would actually like to hear the story about Tubishvat and Purim. Tubishvat and Purim. <laughs> or one. Well. Or the other. Um, so Tubishvat is a different kind of holiday because it actually doesn't have a story as much. Um, the Mishnah talks about there being multiple New Years. There's a New Year based on the king, right? And that would be sort of when the rain begins, that's how we mark time. There's a new year for the creation of the world. Um, there's another new year. And the, the new year of the trees is Tubishvat. Right. Um, so that's pretty much it. Tubishvat, two is in Hebrew, tet and vav, nine plus six. So it's the 15th day of the month of Shvat, Tubishvat. Um, and 15th day of what? Of the month of Shvat. Um, and, you know, it's called in, in a lot of encyclopedias, Jewish Arbor Day. Um, <laughs> right. But if you're I actually... got the Harvey book exactly. the other day. Yeah. If you're an attuned Jew... <laughs> or P.J. Like, Harvey. P.J. <laughs> I know what you meant. P.J. Lightberg. I know what you meant. P.J. Harvey. High school. Yeah. High school. You know, if you're an attuned Jew, every day is to be shvat. Uh-huh. Right, like so on Tubishvat, a lot of people have the seven species that are uh, special in Israel. So it's almonds and dates and um, figs and other ones. We, um, the, uh, but there's no story which actually sets Tubishvat away a, a uh, very different from uh-huh. other holidays. So for Purim, there's certainly a story, mm-hmm. the story of the Book of Esther, the Scroll of Esther. It's in the third section of the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. And um, there are things that typify the story before I tell it. One of them is that God doesn't appear. Mm-hmm. It's a really, really interesting kind of story in that way. Uh, even though it's in the, the Hebrew Bible, God is not an apparent character. It might be that God is somewhere hidden behind the scenes, but there's no, not even a hint. Mm-hmm. So the story of Purim, in very basic form, is that um, in the kingdom of Shushan, um, 
uh, in the city of Shushan, in the kingdom of Paras and Madai, um, there's a king named Achashverosh who um, had a queen whose name was Vashti, and he threw a lavish party and wanted her to appear dancing with nothing but the crown on. She says no. An advisor to the king says, watch out, women are going to start doing that to their husbands, saying no. So they demote her, which we presume means decapitate her, and he wants a new queen. So he sets out looking for a queen. There's a beauty contest. At the same time, there is a man named Mordechai, and his niece, slash sister, slash we don't exactly know their relationship, is named Esther. And Mordechai says to Esther, you're going to have to be part of this beauty competition. Don't tell anyone that you're a Jew. So she doesn't, and she wins. She becomes a queen known as Hadassah. Um, and at the same time, it's like a graphic novel, having three starting points all at the same time moving forward. There is a man, and when I say his name, you're supposed to say boo. Uh, there's a man named Haman. Boo. Who's the, that was very convincing. <laughs> who's, uh, who's an advisor to the king, the vizier, really, of, of the kingdom. And um, he wants everyone to bow down to him. The Midrash rabbis say that he was wearing an idol, so when people would bow down to him, they were bowing to an idol. Mordechai, our hero, one of our heroes, refuses to bow down, and um, Haman doesn't like that. So he asks the king for permission to kill Mordechai and everybody else. Uh, and the king grants it because uh, Haman says, I will give you lots of money. So the king says, uh, okay. So... Esther wins the contest. She becomes the queen. Mordechai knows all of the stuff that's going on. Parenthetically, small ver small part of the story, there are two people plotting to assassinate the king. Mordechai hears it, tells Esther. Esther tells the king. The two bad guys, two assassins, are um, hung. It's recorded in a book. And one night... This is really, it's meant to feel like a comic book. It's meant to feel like a, one of those stories. And one night, the king can't sleep and asks someone to read him a story. What story is going to put him to sleep? The annals of what happens in the king's court. They recount the story of Mordecai saving his life, and, he, and the king can't figure out what should be done to honor this man. So who happens to be walking by on his way to hatch a plot to kill all the Jews? Haman. <laughs> Much better. Now... <laughs> The king calls Haman in, you missed one, and says, <laughs> what should be done to someone who is who the king wishes to honor? Haman thinks it's him. Boo. Boo. Mm. <laughs> says, um, dress this person in all of the king's finery, put him on the king's horse, and bring him through the city streets, praising his name, thinking it's going to be him. And the king says to Haman, Boo. great, do that for Mordechai the Jew. So that's when Haman goes, and you imagine like the comic book really like hard or something, right? Um, brings Mordechai through the streets, goes back and complains to his wife, and she gets her own. She gets instead of hard. So he gets Zeresh, his wife. This is great. I feel like it's purple already. Um, and says, this Mordechai, I can't stand him. She says, well, go make a... a, a on a tree, hang him. Noose. There's a word for what I'm trying to say. Gallows. Uh, gallows. Make a gallows to hang Mordechai. He does. And at the same time, Esther is begged by Mordechai, go get audience with the king. And she, she says, I can't. Unless I'm invited, I can't. 
No one can. So Mordechai says, you must. Maybe you were in this position just for this reason. Hint, hint, parentheses, no one hears it, but God put you here. And Mordechai says, if you don't save us, somebody else is going to. So do it. Very interesting statement made there. Um, but we're not talking about that now. Uh, Esther says, fine, fast for three days. Help me prepare and I will go. Everyone fasts. She goes uh, and goes in unannounced to the king, which is usually punished by death. And uh, phallic device after phallic device being mentioned in the text touches the tip of his scepter, which you're here, supposed to hear like that. He says, come on in. <laughs> <She's>, <laughs> says, what do you want? <laughs> Anything you want. And she says... Um, I want you and Haman Ooh. to come to a party at my house. Okay. They show up at the house for the party, and this is supposed to be just a ludicrous story. She is ready to say to King Ahasuerus, he's the bad guy, but instead says, come back again to a party. And they say, okay, <laughs> come to the party. Some other things unfold. At the second party, she says to Ahasuerus, someone is out to kill my family. And the king says, who would ever do that? And she says, Haman. The king stomps out of the room furious. Haman throws himself, begging (laughs) for his life. But where does he throw himself? Onto the queen's bed, couch, recliner, whatever. It's a compromising position. The king comes back in and says, it wasn't bad enough to destroy this, but also the queen, off with his head. And so Haman and his sons and his wife are all killed. You missed the boo. Uh, but that's supposed to be a yay somehow because violence against violence seems to be, uh, I don't know, the scroll of Esther likes it even if I don't. Um, and Mordechai is placed in the high station that was Haman's. Boo. <laughs> Esther and Mordechai and Ahasuerus live happily ever after. And the other part that I didn't put in is that the name Purim means lots, like a lottery, like gambling. Because that's how Haman, boo, decided the day that the Jews were going to be slaughtered. The king couldn't rescind the decree, but Esther begs him to make another decree, which is that the Jews may defend themselves. And so the highlight of the story is that a day that would have been the destruction of the Jews, they slaughtered everybody else instead. Right. <laughs> Yay team. And on that day, they brought each other's gifts and gave, uh, gave uh, money to the poor and read this story the book of Esther, the end. And they lived happily, slaughtery, ever after. <laughs> Except we all know that that's not true. That's not quite happily No, I mean, after. look, yeah, A, it's not happily ever after. B, the book of Esther feels like a fantasy. And in fact, even Aviva Zornberg, a famous, uh, famous Torah scholar, has suggested that it's just a ludicrous story. It's an absurd story. It's meant to feel absurd. Nothing makes sense. In Hebrew, nora alilah, or in English, a tangled skein. It makes no sense unless you know that it has to get to some strange climax where even the absence of God's explicit presence, the hand of God must be operating because none of this makes any sense. And so one of the other ways of reading, the scroll of Esther in Hebrew is Megillat Esther, and the classic Hasidic twist on those words, Megillat Esther, is Megaleh, Et ha-hester, reveals that which is hidden. Right? But that's a stretch to try to find hidden meaning in what is a very, very human and scary story. Well, you're supposed to get really drunk. You are. 
and that has been problematic not only in places like our shul that used to be a liquor store. Oh, really? Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but also because uh, alcoholism is something that touches every right. community, every family. And so there are commentators who have suggested the original rule in the, in the Talmud says um, you're supposed to get so drunk that you don't know the difference between Arur, Haman, and Baruch Mordechai. Cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai. Interestingly enough, the numerical value of both names is exactly the same, which is a way of saying there's actually no difference, which is actually really frightening, which is actually sort of the story. Um, uh, and the idea of becoming drunk, um, some have explained, I remember reading this commentary, I can't remember which one it is, but it's a Kabbalistic notion, that Haman was out to destroy um, our bodies. And so the way to respond is to become so drunk that I obliterate my mind and all I am is my body, which Haman wanted to destroy. Um, it is a mitzvah on the books to not to drink until you can't tell the difference. And so one of what I find to be a righteous commentary, and I wish I could remember which one, but I did research on this a long time ago, suggests that drink until you don't know the difference means have a l'chaim and go to sleep. Because when you're asleep, you won't know the difference. Um, because the fear of abuse of alcohol and what happens is ancient. There's actually a story in the Talmud of um, a suda, a feast, which we're thinking about having this for him, um, where one rabbi invited another rabbi and got so drunk that he slaughtered the other rabbi. That's pretty bad. And then brought him back to life, because the Talmud can't leave it there. The next year, the same rabbi invited the other rabbi and said, Come to my Purim, Suda. And the rabbi says, Are you kidding? We don't rely on miracles. Twice. Um, which means that the Talmud's also trying to say, This is scary stuff. So yes, the short answer is, Yes, it's a mitzvah. The longer answer is, That's a scary mitzvah. Well, I, I think it's more of you know, the altered state place, and you can do that through the different Indeed. Indeed. Thank you. You're welcome. Why is something considered not kosher? What does kosher mean? Oh, right. That's supposed to be for me. Um, <laughs> kosher is a complicated word because of the way it's used. Kosher actually means fit for connection. It doesn't mean pure, it doesn't mean better, it doesn't mean clean. It doesn't even mean a rabbi blessed it. So what does it mean for something to be kosher? Because conversation is meant to be kosher. And For the Torah, there's actually rules about clothing. The word kosher isn't there, but there's clothing that is fit for wearing and not fit for wearing. When someone goes to mikvah, either to convert to Judaism or because they're going for a life cycle or something, their immersion is actually considered kosher because it affects a new connectability, um, a new dimension of connectability. So when you say, how, what does it mean for something to be kosher, you might mean food. But in the larger sense, it mean, can mean a million things. So were you thinking about food or were you thinking about... I, I think in general, um, why is something considered not kosher? Right. So for example, in food, um, what's wrong with sturgeon? And it doesn't have the right scales and, and those types of things. So what determines that? Yeah. So, I mean, I can answer specifically what determines if food is kosher. 
especially when it comes to certain animals? The answer to that on one level is very, very simple. The Torah says so. Um, certain kind of animals are kosher, certain kind of seafood is kosher, and certain kinds are not. Um, usually the way of seeing the, um, say, the birds, animals that are predator animals are not kosher, even though it's much more narrow than that. That's usually the way of seeing the categories. Um, in terms of fish, f uh, fins and scales are required, and so you have some in-between animals like swordfish that have fins and scales, but those are not apparent as they get older. And so when they're caught, most people thought they never had fins and scales, so they're not kosher. When it was discovered that they have fins and scales, the question is, well, now what? We've been saying it's not kosher. And so there are some who will eat swordfish and some who will not. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, cattle and stuff like that, split hooves, choose its cut. Um, so on that one level, the Torah says so. But on the deeper level, the question is also, is the Torah the ultimate authority when it comes to Jewish law? The answer, theoretically, is yes, but the application of Torah is dependent upon its interpretation. And so, um, why is chicken meat? It's different than your question, but we don't know. It doesn't. You can't cook a chicken in its mother's milk because chickens don't have milk. So, why would I not then have chicken farm, which I've lusted after my entire life? Um, it's now going to be broadcast somewhere. <laughs> uh, so what makes something not kosher? When it comes to those very basic rules, I would say the Torah, as its laws have been accepted for millennia, is the basic place. So what's wrong with surgeon? Nothing. What's kosher about surgeon? Nothing. What makes something not kosher today when it comes to processed food when it comes to restaurants, when it comes to other um, ways that food can be consumed, bought, whatever, um, it's much more complicated. The, the idea that food needs to be certified, meaning attested to with a stamp of approval by a rabbi or a group, is a very, very modern idea. I would refer everyone to a book that was written by a member of Nativo Shalom. The book is called Kosher Nation, written by Sue Fishkoff actually the editor of J Weekly, our uh, local Jewish paper. Um, so it's not that I witness it that makes it kosher, but let's say I'm a kashrut authority and I've got a stamp. You know, this stamp says, Rabbi Menachem creditor supervises it's kosher. Well, not everyone's going to accept that stamp as attesting to the kashrut of the food, which means suddenly it's actually very, very important to have that stamp. Once you have stamps, who do you trust? What authority do you trust? So you might have seen there's a page that you can get on the Nitzvotalam website or other ones that have all the different symbols that we accept. But there are always new symbols. And there are very few symbols we don't accept. So why wouldn't we accept it? Because your question was, how is something not kosher? Well, there's one kashrut symbol that many kosher-keeping people won't accept. Even this shul that doesn't require a kosher symbol for hard cheese has as our policy not to accept this one symbol, which means I would rather, as rabbi of the shul, have non-certified cheese than have this symbol on it, because uh, this 
kashrut symbol is conferred for a commercial transaction. The rabbi offers an imprimatur and never shows up. And I find that to be a bastardization of religion and spirit and trust and honesty and business. Uh, and so, I, because of legal implications, I'm not going to say it oh, here, right. but I'll be glad to show you afterwards. Um, the um, So one of the things that makes something not kosher is not having trust. Now, there are ramifications for that that are also distasteful for me. The application of mistrust um, is why there is such a thing as a mashkiach, a kosher supervisor in many settings. You have a mashkiach, a kosher supervisor, because we don't trust that kashrut will be observed without them. That's kind of yucky. So it's been a commitment of our shul and many communities to not have one. We're not going to have a mashkiach. On rules of kashrut, I'm the authority, but I don't want to be looking over someone's shoulder, implying or even explicitly saying, I, I have to be here for your food to be deemed kosher. So in some communities, supervision is required, but supervision represents trust. So what makes food not kosher is untrustworthiness, but that's not actually ingredients. There are some who say that the introduction of gelatin into food, gelatin usually made from processed bones, if it's not vegetarian, it's usually bones, um, well, what if the bones were of a non-kosher animal? So the conservative movement came out with a ruling years ago, Isaac Klein, was the rabbi who wrote that response, saying that the chemical process by which uh, gelatin is treated renders it not food. So now it's kosher, because it's not food. Um, so the very basic answer to the question is the Torah says, combining milk and meat is a big no-no. But the why behind it, what makes it not kosher, is because we say so. Because why is chicken in there? And why isn't fish meat? But it's not. Why are eggs from a chicken par, meaning not meat, not milk? Why is milk dairy? And meat, from whence the milk came, meat? The answer is because we say so. And so that's one of the problems with religion is that it bases its authority on its own authority. What's called in, in legal theory, in German, the Grundnorm, the basic authority. There are some who try to say that the rules of Kashrut are based on some cosmic order principle. That's not what the Torah says. The Torah says, do it. It's a chok. It's a mysterious law. And so the real reason that Jews have been doing it is because Jews do it. One uh, interesting uh, piece of trivia, the vast majority of the um, people who buy kosher certified food in the United States, the vast majority is not Jewish. Because many people believe that buying kosher food is healthier. It's more sanitary. It's As the Hebrew National old ad used to go, we answer to a higher authority. And that has appeal for a lot of people. So the vast majority of the kosher market in the United States is not Jewish. Which I find to be very, very funny. Is that really because people are thinking that it's better, or that there's just more Higher people quality. that aren't Jewish in the United States, so they're buying... Oh, no, no, no. They're going out of their way to get it. Oh, it's an intentional yeah. dietary you know, diet. 
there was a thing in the, the New York Times about in Florida, yeah. all these inmates that want to eat kosher meals because they think that uh, it's better prison food yeah, because it comes in these individually sealed packages as opposed to just slop on the line. Is it? It is better on the airplane if you yeah. ask for special food. I've asked for kosher food on the airplane, kosher vegetarian, because they'll make it separate for you and bring it to you. Yeah. On all flights. It's nice to do. Anyway, so... Um, is it possible, because if something that is, like, can be turned into not food, but what about, um, in situations with a, uh, like, a trafe dish, like, is it, is it okay for a Jew to, I mean, serve it, or, I mean... Like, say what you mean. Like, if you're, if you're... Okay, say like... Um, like if you work at Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah, if you work at Kentucky Fried Chicken and you're not eating any of it, but you're just serving it to other people. Is that okay? Can it... It's probably really tempting. I mean, I don't know. And there's a rule that if you, you know, you don't place a stumbling block before the blind, is sort of the, the verse, that when something is tempting and you shouldn't be doing it, don't put yourself near it. So, you know, that's one of the reasons that I'm very wary of having alcohol out, especially uh, in encouraging its use, unmoderated, um, when there are people who are recovering alcoholics in our shul and everywhere. Um, so in this case, even though I don't want to compare the destructive property of alcohol, especially for someone who's so vulnerable to it, um, to, you know, greasy chicken, which is unhealthy for everybody equally, um, and not kosher, and therefore for a Jew not to do, um, I don't want to make the comparison, except that for a Jew, keeping kosher is a mitzvah, not keeping kosher is a sin. Right? We don't like using the word, but it's a violation of the rule. Sin just sounds yuckier. Um, so, is a Jew allowed to serve non-kosher food? There are actually really important debates that happen about this. Um, I think the answer is yes, because making a living is actually a responsibility, and if this is the job that a person needs, take the job, serve the food, don't eat it. Um, and, I would say, most likely in any restaurant, even KFC, there is food that is permissible. You gonna eat the biscuits? It's complicated, man. You really want to get into it, we can get into it. But the process by which biscuits are made includes baking. Baking includes an oven. Oven is probably used for the meat, too. Mm. If you could say that the ingredients going into the biscuit are all fine, and the biscuit maker is only biscuit, is, is only you know, grain and egg and whatever... Um, there are those who would say, fine, but the biggest thing that I miss is pizza. Mm. And pizza ovens are just, you know, huge ovens where the pepperoni and everything goes in. So the property of the non-kosher meat that's on the pizza or whatever travels. In fact, it's not just a halakhic principle, although it is. It's, uh, it's just a law of physics that the food is all over the place. And so the property of something that's made in an oven transfers to something else that's made into the oven. Really? The, it, it, the meat wouldn't touch the vegetarian pizza? Zeah is the Hebrew word for sweat. Oh. And if you've ever done a terrarium... The right, aroma the, of the meat? No, no, no. <laughs> Not just the aroma, but, I mean, smell is small particles. Tony Kushner has a great piece on that in Angels in America. But, um, you know, property of the food travels. Like, the any of the cheese, any of the meat has any moisture. The moisture, uh, because of the heat, is on the walls of the oven. What do you mean? Were you not kosher at some point? I, I was always kosher. <laughs> <laughs> me, myself, and me. Um, 
I would eat out in restaurant. I would eat out in pizza joints, mm-hmm. um, and I would have pizza that was made in the same oven. Yeah. And so I made the decision to stop doing that because, from I just felt it wasn't. I didn't have integrity as someone saying they were keeping kosher when I was watching them put the pepperoni pizza in right next to the pizza that I want. Well, it's good that you moved here because we don't really have good pizza. <laughs> I guess yeah. it is. I also no, try not to eat cheese, board. to be honest. Yeah. That's that's just my gallbladder speaking. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. You need a cheese board. I think <laughs> so, all vegetarian. I know it's very dangerous. You just we have to be careful here. Um, but what I would also say is, you know, you probably know the joke. It's a really really good joke because you were asking about serving a dish. But at first, I thought you were talking about literally the physical dish, the plate, because there are actually rules about that too. So this is the classic joke. If you haven't heard it, it's worth hearing. Um, God says to Moses, "Do not c- cook a kid in its mother's milk." And Moses says, oh, okay, God, so that means I shouldn't have a cow with milk and I shouldn't have chicken with milk either because it's an animal. And even though it could, right, God says, Moses, don't cook a kid in its mother's milk. So Moses says, oh, I understand. So I should only eat food that's certified kosher with a stamp on it and and wait three hours between meat and, and eating milk. Uh Right? And God says, Moses, don't cook a kid in its mother's milk. So Moses says, oh, I get it. So that means I should have a different set of dishes for meat than I have for milk. But glass can be okay in between. And I should have another set of meat dishes for Passover, another set of milk dishes for Passover. And and I should be careful with metal utensils. Right, God? And God says, have it your way. (laughs) Right? And so, in a certain sense... The system of law on any question, Kashrut is a huge, huge one of them, um, is so intricate. It's possible to lose yourself in the details and forget the purpose. On the other hand, communal norms also happen organically. And so the question of what is acceptable, what is not, what isn't kosher, what is, what can I do regarding food, how do I deal with my own home when I have friends who don't keep kosher who are Jewish, how do I deal with my own home when I have friends who aren't Jewish and therefore don't keep kosher either, how do I allow potluck meals at Nativot Shalom? And I'm speaking about I because we do. And it's very complicated. We create a kashrut policy that's available online even if you don't keep kosher at home, which is here's how to pre- prepare kosher food even if you don't keep a kosher kitchen. Mm-hmm. And no one's watching. <clears throat> and it's a principle of, that we have as a shul to not judge, not let kashrut be a source of judgment. And so... I'm taking a huge risk from a halachic standpoint, allowing potluck. I'd rather take that risk and allow people to contribute in the in the way that they are in life, doing what is appropriate for the kashrut policies of shul without relegating them to outsider status. But it's very tricky. Food brings up all of these issues. Um, so kashrut is a big, big one. Was there any movement in... Sorry. So kosher later, I was going to switch from kosher to... I just have one more kosher question. So if an egg has a little bit of blood in it, it's no longer kosher. If a fertilized egg has any blood in it, it's not kosher. Most eggs today in the United States are not fertilized. Okay, so if a fertilized egg has a little bit of blood in it, then it's not kosher. Correct. What if you boil it? Right. The rule is, based on some rabbinic notion of math, Fuzzy math, as a presidential candidate once said. Um, Because you can't check the egg for blood before making it hard-boiled, 
you boil three at a time because the presumption of probability is that there isn't. I am not saying that I understand that rule. <laughs> I am saying that I follow that rule. I don't eat the you know, if it has blood in it anyways. Because of it. Yeah. yeah. Mary Douglas is a scholar who has basically who's analyzed rules of purity and kashrut in Leviticus and elsewhere and just said it's it's a lot of fear of yuck, fear of bodily fluid, fear of blood, fear of whatever. Um, the rules of purity are actually based on a very primal uh, instinct like that. So you boil exactly three eggs? You can boil at up least, to three eggs or more three than eggs. three eggs? Three well, or Passover, more. Passover, you got to boil like 20 at least. That makes me... I don't... I know. I'm, I know. I'm saying, I know. <laughs> I understand. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, so growing up, I think the there was a higher percentage of eggs that were fertilized that were on the market. I'm not sure why any of that changed. I'm not really interested in why. But um, when we would use eggs, we would have a small glass. We would crack the egg, uh, look at what came out in a the clear glass. If there was any blood, we'd get rid of it. If there wasn't blood, we'd put it into the mixture, right? Today, the eggs that I have at home aren't fertilized. I still check. I, I, I just... It just can't not check. It's not necessarily OCD. It's sort of like, my mom always checks. So I'm going to check the eggs. They always cut the end off the brisket. I was, I was going to say, right. So for those who don't know, that's a, it's one of the more beautiful stories. Right? And do, do you want to tell it? I probably tell it wrong. I'm not Jewish yet. You wouldn't tell it wrong. Because Jews don't tell stories right either. Um, the short version of a very beautiful story is that, you know, there's a girl who's growing up and she's always uh, making food with her mother and it's a really big part of who she is and as she gets older she wants to make all those recipes and so then she gets married and, and her partner notices that whenever she makes a brisket she takes uh, a knife and cuts off this end and that end. Partner sort of watches it for a while and then says, honey, what, what, are, you, what are you doing? And she says, this is how we make briskets, how we do it. And so she asks her mom, Mom, you know, I I follow our recipes really carefully. I always cut the brisket on both sides. Why, why do we do that? Just, I don't I don't know. My my mom always did it. Let's go ask Grandma. So they go to Grandma, and they say, Grandma, you know, we have a question. We make brisket in our family's recipe and the tradition. Like, we cut this side off and that side off the brisket. Why do we do that? She said, Oh, I had a pan that was just this big. <laughs> so I always had to cut the end off of each side so that it would fit into the pan. You know, so the question really is, and this is a beautiful, instead of the cynical way of telling the story, the beautiful way of saying the story is, well, did they keep cutting off the ends of the brisket? Right? Does it have that kind of meaning? Erwin Kula has a beautiful section in a book called um, Yearnings, uh, Embracing the Sacred Messiness of Life, where he tells the story of the tooth fairy in very much the same way, like, so what if my kids, don't listen right now on the podcast, kids, you're not allowed to listen, so what if they already know that I'm the tooth fairy? Right? The tooth fairy is still going to take their teeth and leave them a dollar. Right? It is, it's huge. So sort of the mythic power of, of the brisket. Right? And I would say the mythic power of kashrut. Right? If it can retain that kind of magic to it, then it's awesome. I check eggs. I'm not going to find anything. There can't be anything. By definition, there can be no blood there. Or if I see anything, it's not that. X.
second. I was going to ask, was, it, uh, was there or is there at any point some mainstream movement that said, okay, like we're complicating our life too much with rules and plates and dishes and maybe that's not what was intended? Should we go back to like simpler times or simpler ways of doing things? rather than juggling with plates and things like that. So there are two movements that come to mind, not precisely what you're asking, but really close to it. The reform movement in, uh, in Europe and the reform movement in the United States, there were two birth moments, um, rejected the mosaic rules of Kashrut because they didn't, um, they didn't amplify ethical monotheism, which was the prophetic impulse, which was embraced by reform very early. Um, and because it didn't sort of sharpen our character, at least in, in their views, they rejected it outright. It got in the way of what was more important. It wasn't a return to a simpler version of Kashrut. Um, it was a rejection of the laws, of, and of law in general. Um, the other group would be the Karaites. The Karaites uh, were an ancient sect that rejected the Pharisaic and therefore rabbinic interpretations. They believed in the Torah the five books, and the rest of the Tanakh, although not the exact same canon, um, but not the interpretive layers on top of it. Um, and so those were two big movements. The reform movement was much stronger in the end than the Karaites. There are, there are some Karaites still here in Davis and elsewhere in the world. Um, and they have their own interpretive process. They just reject rabbis. Uh, and um, the reform movement itself has sort of turned around and begun to re-embrace some ritual because ethical monotheism doesn't necessarily lend itself towards uh, perpetuation of the particulars of Judaism. Um, and, it's not a movement, but one of my favorite quotes by Martin Buber is that he saw as one of his life's goals to extricate Judaism from the rubble of rabbinism. So the rubble of rabbinism is the unnecessary intricacies. On the other hand, if God is in the details, you need the details. He saw, he saw part of what he was trying to achieve as a return to the basic principles, the big goals. And when did that movement start? The Reform Movement? Well, in the 1800s, okay. uh, sort of post-Enlightenment, Mendelssohn. You so know. almost from like early um, like 100 AD or 100 uh, CE until the 1800s, there wasn't really any other large... I mean, the notion of like movement that. actually started with the Reform Movement. Um, before that, you know, Judaism was much more organic. I could point to Sephardic tradition, or Yemenite tradition, or uh, Egyptian, or Italian. Each one of them very distinct. And Ashkenazi became an amalgam, but you had German, French, you know, um, traditions. I, I would say that there were always groups doing it differently. But our idea of movements based on an idea, as opposed to based on an ethnic connectivity, yeah. um, no, that's very recent. And fading, to be honest. Fading into what? Well, that depends on who you're asking. If you ask the establishment's um, uh, Jewish sociologists who do a lot of surveys and studies like Jack Wertheimer and Steve Cohen, uh, Jack Euclid and, and others, um, they'll say it's fading into nothingness. It's fading into some postmodern mish that loses the particular in Judaism's fading and rituals dying and blah, 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 blah. We're all descending into the death of the Jewish people. Demographics 
bear that out somewhat, depending on how you ask questions, how many Jews are there, how many Jewish children are there. Um, but if you ask me, it's not working because it's artificial to say that we actually believe in this idea first and foremost. More Jews, I find, are interested in being just Jews. Uh, not knowing what it is, but also not saying, I will only believe in Judaism this way, and brand loyalty is my first Jewish loyalty. Um, and it's happening all over the all over the world, but it's certainly happening in the United States that conservative Judaism and Reform Judaism are just shrinking. But that doesn't mean Judaism is shrinking. It means that the identifiable movement, and by identifiable movement, you might mean institutional dues-paying synagogues. But for instance, just this last month, Netivot Shalom, which is and always has been and will always be more closely identified with conservative Masorti Judaism, we were disaffiliated by the organized conservative movement, meaning United Synagogue, uh, the umbrella agency for conservative synagogues, because we couldn't afford their dues. Um, and that was yucky. You know, if people who are members of Nitivot Shalom can't afford the dues, they're still members of Nitivot Shalom, we're family, but the problem with movements and how are they fading, it's sometimes just based on money. Um, money, of course, is reflective of priorities, um, but the priority of any Jew or any Jewish group or any community, I think, is first and foremost Jewish passion, Jewish content. For some, it's Jewish culture. For some, it's you know political engagement, learning engagement, stuff. Um, so when you say fading into, I, I would say actually fading into something better, which is the rebirth of an organic Judaism. It's hard to identify it with a movement, but that matters less and less even to me. And I'm a child of this one. Someone this, someone said this to me in Montreal, that they feel that never in history before has Judaism been as strong as it is today. Yeah. You know why they were saying it? I think it's just based on the things that you just said, just based on the amount of thought, amount of interest, amount of things that people are doing, amount of connections people are making. It's, yeah. it's It hasn't been like that in, I don't know, a long time. Right. I mean, you know, many people, you know, in no way can I make a... a, a I don't have any response to this observation, but many people feel that the destruction of Eastern European Jewry, uh, European Jewry during the Shoah, um, was the loss of the grandeur of Torah. Um, and it's true that many, many great teachers were slaughtered. Um, so I can't compare it to anything, except to say that there are more people learning Torah today than there have ever been in, in all of history. Um, that's also because Judaism is in the wider world, but it's also because there's more Jewish learning happening, more Jewish teachers doing it. Um, and so, you know, dissent and loss, I mean, as any every generation that becomes the establishment dies, it feels like what it cares about most is dying too. But I, I have to say, I think Judaism is stronger than it ever has been before. I'm worried um, because that fear narrative, the scarcity narrative, really does drive a lot of Jewish leadership decisions, which sometimes tries to lower the threshold, reduce the content of the experience such that more people will um, will have access to it, will come in the door. That's why some shuls begin to include women in minyan, counting women in a prayer quorum, not because they believe in principled egalitarianism, but because they can't make a minyan, they don't get enough people. That's just a degradation, right, of the whole thing, not just women, but of everybody. 
so too some communities begin to include musical instruments on Shabbat and holidays because they think it will get more people. Not because they think it's what they're supposed to do. If musical instruments are being included because we say this is what we're going to do, we believe in this, that's great. But some rabbis and other people are scared that they're not getting enough people, so they try mixing it up. And that's when Judaism gets weaker. But it's based on a scarcity narrative, not based on the strength that, that we actually embody, I think. My husband won't go to those competitions. No. That's so no. nice. Guitars. I like yeah. guitars, just not then. Uh, yeah, just not then, right. Um, I have a couple questions. Yes. Um, one is just an observation. A long, long time ago, I went to shul with a friend in high school, and I have this memory of her. We had the meal, and then she and her sister went into the kitchen and drank their glass of milk. Is that a way of keeping kashrut? No. Because they were conservative. And it was really interesting because I thought, they had a well, meat, like, they had a meat meal. Drinking? Yeah, I think we had a And then they went to a different room to have a glass of milk. They, yeah. I'm pretty sure that there's, I don't know them, I'm pretty sure that there's some hiding happening here. <laughs> and perhaps like... From the dad? Yeah, snarky and shame and like, I'm just going to do it over there. Interesting. Because um, there's no way to defend that in Jewish law. Because, you know, I'm from Minnesota, so this was in Minnesota, so it was really important well, Minnesota to everybody to drink is. milk. <laughs> like, th that you did that. I didn't yeah, I really don't, do that. I don't I, know. But it was, I was really interested because I have this memory of them doing that. Yeah, no. It, you know, could be it might be nice. a brisket slicing thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so. Although, just to one thing. Yeah. Um, Pesach, as a child, we would have, we had prescription vitamins. Uh-huh. And they weren't kosher Passover vitamins. Right. And they're not really food, but maybe they're food, right? Yeah. So, I remember, we would bring, we were like, Oh my God! So so careful on Pesach. Like we are too. Like yeah. I remember it's a child. It was so like so intense. Um, we would the put the vitamins out? in the bathroom, ah. so we'd have the vitamins in the bathroom. And I don't know that I compare it to having milk after meat, but I do know that I was like, I don't know if I'm supposed to do this, but I think my parents just told me to do it. And it's Pesach, but we all love Pesach. I think I'm just gonna have the vitamin, but in the bathroom. Right, right. So maybe it's maybe it's similar yeah, in a small way. Like that, yeah. yeah um. So my question is, is there a way that you can speak to, like in the Amish tradition, when you turn 18 or there's like this period of like, you go and you, you can kind of not be under the religious prescriptions and constrictions and experiment or you know, you just kind of make this room for adolescent experimentation. I'm wondering, as a father and as a rabbi of a congregation, what do people do when their kids are like, I don't want to do this thing, I don't want to, all these rules, <laughs> get away from me. Um, adolescents are hard. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think adolescence, when I last read, it was defined as going until 40, 45? <laughs> 26. 26. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm still there and I'm past that. Um, you know, I think that... I'll just speak very personally. I want my children to care about what I care about. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm a free thinker, and I think I'm raising them to be free thinkers, but... Not really. 
I want them to be really Jewy Jews. <laughs> and I want their Jewishness to manifest as them acting in the world on behalf of all people. And I want them to want to wear kippah doing that. And I want them to love Israel in the critical way that I do. And I want them to marry a Jew, and I don't really care because I just want them to find love, but I really do care because mm-hmm. I want to have Shabbos with them, and I want them to make Jewish babies, and I want them to have their own life and make their own choices, and I really do want what I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and I'm sort of wrapped up because it's not about me, but it's really about me when I think about it. <laughs> and uh, one day they'll listen to the podcast and know that I really want them to make their own choices. And at the same time, really want to share the beauty in the world as I experience it. And that every parent probably navigates that kind of intense tension. Um, and I feel that as rabbi of the shul, though paternal is not part of my job description, it is my emotional reality. Um, whereas I don't want... I don't want anyone to feel coerced into any pattern of observance and really want everyone to be seduced by the beauty of it. And... Um, when they don't, whoever the they is, young or old, I feel loss. Mm-hmm. I feel if we didn't succeed in communicating how beautiful it is, because if we did, who would choose not to? And so when I feel so affirmed when someone's choosing Judaism, when my children, and they're not old enough yet to make those decisions, but members of the shul and their children, they talk to me about choices, or the members themselves, the grown-ups, right? It's not just not happening for them. Um, I am committed. I think religion, when it does right, is committed to not not judging. Mm-hmm. And you know, and, and as much as I say seducing people towards observance, like I actually mean honest seduction. I say out loud, I want you to love this, mm-hmm. and don't try to trick anyone into it. So I'm fundamentally a non-fundamentalist who wants my humble absolutes to be contagious. But there's nothing traditional or in Torah or anything that kind of speaks to that period of adolescence. No, no. Oat sowing, it's not, you know, it's a very powerful experiment within the Amish community. I, I don't know how it works, if it does, if it doesn't. It's certainly very brave. Um, but no, the presumption, I think, is that the battling and the struggling that happens along a Jewish uh, journey, right, a, a life, is internal and within the frame. Like, I am happiest, and you hear more and more of B'nai Mitzvah talking about this, with them saying, I don't get it. I don't like this thing in the Torah. I'm not sure I believe in God. They're saying it in shul, at the Torah. They're saying it in shul, in a sacred space, because that kind of struggle, that kind of adolescence, typifies a Jewish religious identity. Like, at no point is there ever meant, at least my sense, for there to be acquiescence and conformity. Even when our observance is so similar, one person to the next, the debate is where it's really Jewish. Well, my nephew, he, one of his, uh, one of my nephews at Bar Mitzvah, he questioned the belief in God. It was his whole. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, you know, non-Jews who come to shul, especially my friends who are pastors in the community, uh, are freaked out by that. They're freaked out. They're like, what did you just say? <laughs> And we're, you know, when we learn scripture together, I have this dream, Pastor McBride and I uh, have this dream to set up a table right in between the church and the shul, so like on the island in the street, like just taking out our Bibles and sitting and learning. Um, but when I attack the text, there are moments where he goes like, what are you doing? 
isn't that God's word? And I say, oh, do you really want to have that conversation? <laughs> you know, but, you know, the contesting of truth is itself a Jewish act. And so I don't know that Judaism has ever nurtured uh, rebellion from, but it's nurtured rebellion within. So one of my favorite uh, class that I liked the best was um, on prayer. And you framed it largely as sort of a, a reflective state in a lot of ways. Uh, reflective in certain ways, you know, uh, hey, mom, you're cool, can I have the keys, thanks. Um, but... I wonder if maybe you could talk about that in the context of activism or sort of the political realm. Say more about the question so that I understand more. So you talked about prayer as something that is, is a, and the exercise of religion more broadly in Judaism, as something that is a, 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 reflexive, a reflective quality. Yeah. A sort of a, a critical approach to whatever you're doing um, through which you are able to manifest your ethics. Yeah. Um, political exercise, in a way, typifies that. Yeah. Um, how does one go about it within the context of Judaism differently from any other? Well, I don't know about differently from any other. That part of it is, you know, I hope every particular has a way of engaging. Um, but as a Jew, um, this world is on fire. Everywhere. With every um, needless death, callous treatment, um, an image of God is erased. And a Jew shouldn't countenance that. So, might be my own personal righteous rage speaking, but I believe that it's larger than that. Um, you know, within Jewish law, pikuach nefesh docheh right? Saving a life trumps everything else. And so a Jew should be an indefatigable champion of the divine image in every single way. And so that means that I really hope the divine image lasts. And since the divine, divine image, as far as we know, is limited to this sphere, maybe we'll find out otherwise and be, have it complicated when we find out that there's life elsewhere. But for now... Human beings, in Jewish eyes, are created in the image of God. If there's no earth, there's no divine image. So I think I'm supposed to do something about that. If I find out that um, there is an effort to curtail safety in a community, I should do something about that. If human dignity is being assaulted, and so... It's not a knee-jerk reaction. It's actually 
an embodied um, uh, reflective state. Right? If I actually internalize the commitment of Judaism to human dignity, then as a Jew, everywhere I turn, I have this burden on my shoulders. No act is neutral. And so, you know, I've shared before that there was a moment, and, you know, we all have these moments, so I'm not saying there's anything special about me having my own, but where I was making copies to go teach Torah, like the copy machine broken was here, uh, the copy machine here was broken, and so I was running across the street to the copy place, and there was this homeless guy that I know, and, like, I had my coffee mug here, my copies here. They're all pouring out of my hands. I can barely hold it together. It's Friday afternoon. I'm late for Shabbos, and I run right past him so I could prepare myself to teach Torah. That was a really big sin. And sin, in Jewish terms, means missing the mark. I absolutely missed it. So I don't know if I can say more about sort of the reflective state there's a way of phrasing it that's always worked for me. Um, Gershom Shalom was the founder of the academic study of Jewish mysticism. He's a professor at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He's a really, really powerful teacher. And um, he's quoted by a modern Orthodox rabbi, Rabbi Mark Angel, in his own sort of autobiographical rabbinic memoir. And so Angel says, I'm a, Mark says, I'm a mystic. But what does a mystic mean? Gershom Shalom said, that the definition of a mystic is someone who has an inkling of the world as it ought to be and is in pain because the world that is is not there yet, dedicates themselves towards building the world as it ought to be, knowing it's never going to get there. So I think that pretty much says it, at least for me. You're getting at the motivation for activism, but not necessarily the mode in which. Oh, you how do the Jew age? I know one of the things that you spent a long time talking about with respect to a couple of the classes was um, the, the story where uh, people were arguing about some thing. They 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 had all these proof. God comes in and demonstrates one person's right, they say, I don't really care, the rest of us agree, God's out of the equation. Right. Um, the emphasis on dialogue, the emphasis on sort of jointly creating our reality and prioritizing our sort of shared covenants with one another. Um, that resonates to me in terms of politics in terms of the value of not necessarily the action, but of the convincing, of consensus. Interesting. I don't know, I just thought that it's something that definitely sparked my interest, and I was wondering if there's something mm. more there. Yeah, it's interesting, sort of like the methods of engagement. Yeah, I don't think there's any, any one way to answer that question. I think Jews are sort of a typical social group in, in that sense. You know, and the proclivity when under threat to take care of self as opposed to beyond, and then how under threat am I? Will I even invoke God's intention so that I can win the argument? Do I use biblical proof? Consensus-driven? Is it talking? Would I ever resort to force in order to to 
see what I believe is right be the way things are? Um, those are all questions I think that Jews have more in common with other people than having their own particular method. I would say, though, um, that when it comes to political engagement and questions of survival, um, the image of the Jew has been much debated recently. The most clear contrast drawn is um, square in Warsaw. Uh, and the, there are two bronze reliefs on two sides of a big monument. And in fact, they're, they're, uh, there are replicas on Yad Vashem, the Holocaust with a Memorial Museum in Israel. Um, one is of the Arch of Titus, with the Jews hunched over, um, being driven into exile, weak. And the other image is of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, with Mordechai Nalevich, who led it, and he's bare-chested. I mean, his shirt is ripped open, and he is ripped, holding a Molotov cocktail, and his is the image of a new Jew. Now, did he really look like that? No. He was, he was starving in a ghetto. But that's the image, especially in terms of modern Israel and, and what a lot of Jewishness has sort of developed into within a sovereign state. But that never again claim is never again for many uh, in Israel, never again will we be dependent upon someone else's strength to survive. Right? And so it requires a different kind of political engagement. Um, that's not necessarily what we were talking about, but political engagement for many Jews means on behalf of Jews. That's a really, really important, um, important point. Cautionary, actually. So here's what we'll do. We're just after uh, our time, um, but... Uh, I'm hopeful that this is sort of an opportunity that we'll take again when our class is over uh, because of the podcast now we're actually going to start doing uh, Ask the Rabbi Sessions once in a while that the show will begin to advertise and I hope that will be fun so thank you to everybody and to all good night <laughs>